Welcome to the Deck 4 Podcast. There's a companion newsletter on Substack, and you can find our podcast homepage and links to social media at georgefairbrother.com. Hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and thanks for listening. 2023 marks the 50th anniversary of two landmark entertainment events, both of which we've discussed in previous podcasts. One is the pioneering satellite concert by Elvis, Aloha from Hawaii, and the other is the release of the classic movie American Graffiti. Both went on to colossal success, but both could have very easily collapsed at many stages along the way. So we're going to replay a conversation with our regular contributor Gary Wells from the end of 2021, talking American Graffiti and more American Graffiti. But first, Gary will be joining us for some additional comments, especially for the 50th anniversary. But before we get to our American Graffiti segment, a couple of quick points on Aloha. Since we recorded our three-part series on Aloha from Hawaii, we note the sad passing of Gabe Baltazar Jr., who we discussed during episode two. He was a distinguished jazz sax player and flautist with an incredible career as a professional musician, and he played the iconic flute solo in American Trilogy. Now, we link to his obituary in our companion newsletter for this episode. Gabe Baltazar Jr. sadly passed away June 12, 2022, aged 92. Now, also in episode one, um, I gave sole credit for the design of the Aloha jumpsuit to Bill Ballou. However, Bill Ballou's design associate, Jean Doucette, was actually responsible for the specific design of really what became one of Elvis's most recognisable and iconic jumpsuits. So we're going to be talking a little more on Aloha from Hawaii later in the program. And um, in particular, we're going to expand on a moment that we really only alluded to very briefly in the original series and that's when Elvis arrived by helicopter uh, to the Hilton Hawaiian village he had that a really warm reception from the fans and he also gave a brief interview now the gentleman that he spoke to was Tom Moffat who had a really interesting place in Elvis history and was a leading DJ and record company executive and music promoter in Hawaii, widely respected and loved. And we're going to learn a little bit more about him. But now here's Gary on American Graffiti. Ever since I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in 2019, I have made it a point each year to explore films from 50 years ago. That year of 2019, I made a list of films made in 1969 and tried to watch as many as I could. I'm excited that this year, 2023, will mark the 50th anniversary of George Lucas's American Graffiti. For the full story of the impact of this film on my life, be sure to head to soulrideblog.com to read all four parts of my review. In a nutshell, my stepfather, who was 16 in 1962, introduced me to the film, suggesting that I would not really understand life until I had seen it. It took a while, but American Graffiti slowly grew on me. It was when I hit a certain age that I fully understood its significance, both as an iconic piece of filmmaking history, but also as a significant document of an era and of a time in one's own life. I began to watch it every Labor Day weekend, first by myself and later with my two sons. The details of when the film takes place I have talked about in my articles, but basically it depicts a time when the freedom of summer is over and the seriousness of school and life once again call us to our responsibilities. Labor Day represents a pivot point in our year, and Lucas's film takes this a step further. American Graffiti is about a few things, but the theme that permeates every minute of screen time is transition. Not only are these kids dealing with going out into the world and leaving their hometown, but very soon all of American culture would face a substantial pivot point. 
one felt through many areas of life. I always like to augment my movie-watching experience with more. I want to read about a film, watch its sequel, and listen to its soundtrack, and I do love a novelization of a film I enjoy. Sometimes, though, an author may play a little fast and loose. The complete American graffiti, the novel, I miraculously found at a thrift store many years ago. It attempts to present the stories of both American graffiti and its sequel, More American Graffiti, in book form. While it's fun to take the movie with you in this way, be warned you may also have to put up with some odd literary choices. Case in point is the fateful night that John Milner went on to meet Buddy Holly. The author of the novelization puts forth the idea that the car that struck and killed John was the white 1956 Thunderbird driven by the blonde, Sherry. Beside her was her date, Officer Holstein, and in the back seat were Bob Falfa and his date, Buddha the car hop. Silly, but heck, the film is a comedy after all. My boys and I have gotten plenty of laughs from American Graffiti, even after the movie has ended. In-jokes between us include using the phrase, I'm a ready teddy, and repeating Toad's complaint, my leg, my leg. And I can always get a laugh out of my stepfather by saying, like every other guy in town, you've got the same secret dream. You want to be a pharaoh. Or... Oh, no thanks, I'm waiting for a double chubby chuck. This is that kind of film. I guess not everyone loves this film, though, today or when it came out. Famously, the normally savvy film critic Pauline Kael seemed to miss the point completely. She actually said, there is nothing to back up the style of the film. I don't know, I babbled on for four articles about the many wonderful things backing up the style. And she said it was draggy? Makes me wonder if Ms. Kale was ever a teenager. One autumn, after my usual Labor Day viewing of American Graffiti, I bought and read the autobiography of Wolfman Jack, who features so prominently in Lucas's memories and his film. Early on in Wolf's book, I could tell that he was presenting his life story in a very conversational way. He definitely wrote the way he spoke. And that was great. It makes for a very casual and easy read. I was excited to get to the American Graffiti part of the book, and when I did, I was not disappointed. Very noticeable was the change in tone once Wolf started talking about his time making the film. He gets very reverent. It was great to read that perhaps Wolfman Jack feels towards the movie the way many of us do. More practically, I was fascinated to learn that George Lucas paid Wolfman Jack for his appearance in the film by giving him a very small share of the profits, a minuscule share that resulted in a substantial income for the Wolfman that lasted until the day he sadly passed away. All of this and so much more is what makes American Graffiti a unique film and a singular movie-watching experience. I'm thrilled to have been given the chance to share my thoughts on this film I hold so dear on the occasion of its 50th birthday. Thank you, Mr. Lucas. Can you tell us a little bit about, first of all, how it almost didn't get made, then when it did get made, it almost didn't get released? Well, I'm always... I'm often baffled traveling through the vintage leisure world and, and looking at things from the past that have proved enormous over the years at how often it was that the powers that be didn't believe in it or, or didn't think it would work. I mean, even after that sort of thing happening in history, these men didn't look back on those times and think, well, maybe this is one of those. Maybe we should green light this. Nobody seemed to learn that sometimes you got to step out of the boat 
and take a chance. And I guess their job is to run the business end. So maybe we can't expect them to see the artistic and to see a, a director's vision. But at the same time, they're in the business and that's part of it. Shouldn't they look at that and say, you know what? There would be an audience for this. But Universal, first of all, Lucas couldn't interest anybody in it. Perhaps it's partly my beloved American International Studios fault because they were making films and others were at the time that were hyper-violent, sexual, a lot of crashes and blow-ups and murders. And credit George Lucas where he, he wanted to tell a different story, his own story. And he says himself, you know, they wanted hot rods to hell. They wanted a murder. They wanted, he says, they wanted a film that wasn't American Graffiti. So all the student, all the studios continually said they weren't interested. So he was finally able to interest Universal in it. But again, after the uh, uh, an initial test screening, there were so many issues they had with it. And the Universal guys were all distraught. Oh, what are we going to do with this film? Think about it. The film that you and I know and love, they watched the same basic film and were distraught. It, it baffles the mind that they didn't see what he had there. And I guess you got to leave it up to guys like Lucas to be the visionaries, to see over the horizon and to say, you know what, there would be an audience for this type of film. And, you know, it's funny that with his American Graffiti, he ushered in a whole different type of film and filmmaking. And so it was a real struggle. And his producer friend, Francis Ford Coppola, was there fighting for him. And, you know, eventually, almost reluctantly, almost like, oh, what do we got to lose? Let's just release this stupid thing. And then everybody bought homes in the islands with the money they made from it. It was it was one of those stories where you shake your head at what, you know, the guys couldn't see. And Lucas, in many ways, revolutionized filmmaking. I mean, you can make a case that it was that huge. So at the core of all this, you can't do all that without a lovely movie and a, and a wonderful story. And that's something that you and I have connected with and it's resonated with us. So the proof is in the film itself. It's magnificent any time of year. I'll just actually read something that, that you have written. Uh, George Lucas made American Graffiti in 28 days for $775,000. Test audiences loved it. Universal hated it. Producer Coppola was miffed and said he'd buy it back from the studio. But Universal finally released it and it became one of the original sleeper hits. The film initially grossed $55 million. 325 million in today's dollars. In 1978, it was re-released and grossed an additional 63 million, bringing the total to 118 million or 697 million in current dollars. The 43rd highest grossing film of all time adjusted for inflation and one of the highest cost to profit ratios in movie history. So the Universal executives didn't really distinguish themselves, but there was something uh, interesting too about the, the music rights. Um, that they managed to secure. Um, can you just talk us through that? To say the music is part of American Graffiti is, is, doesn't scratch the surface even. The music is is interwoven into, into every aspect that you can enjoy about American Graffiti. Somehow it relates to the music. Historically... Now everybody's a music supervisor, a, a film job I covet, choosing the music to appear in a film. Well, the director, Lucas, did that himself. So at the time, though, their Easy Rider did do a similar thing on a smaller scale previous to this. But beyond that, it just wasn't done. Music departments at studios were vibrant. They provided music, incidental music, and that was what you did. There was a budget for that. And you scored the film. You had somebody score the film. But Lucas's story was different. 
and it called for obviously something different. And it was, let's get all these songs. Now, what is it? I think it's 43 songs used in the film. When they got down to securing the rights to use these songs, again, it wasn't a thing. Think about it. Early 70s. So, it was, it was still only, you know, 10, 10, 12, 15 years removed from when these songs were new. A lot of these poor guys were still out there playing the, the bars and the county fairs trying to make a dollar. The business was different. Somebody said to Lucas when they were busy securing the rights, you know what, for a few dollars more, we could buy the rights as opposed to leasing them or renting them, however the business is done. They're just sitting there being not used. The publishing rights holders would love the chance to make some money to, to sell these, fil- these songs outright to us. But I mean, Universal, we just finished talking about how they were sad about spending the money they did. You know, a, a dollar or two more was never going to happen. So Universal wouldn't agree to them buying the rights to all these songs, which as we know, thanks in part to Wolfman Jack and his packaging all these songs into albums, the compilation album became something gargantuan in the business and you needed the songs to fill these so to having having owned these would be incredibly lucrative they they weren't able to buy the rights but they they did lease them or whatever they do and and the film is i was going to say the film is better for it but i mean he wouldn't have made it. it i don't think i can think of another time in history where the music is so inextricably linked with the story and not just the action but what's happening in people's hearts and minds is linked to this music. So the music is a huge part of American graffiti. And it's funny to think that Universal, you know, wouldn't shell out because that became a huge thing in the years that were to come. You know, licensing music was a, is a huge business today. So it's a fascinating part of that movie story for sure. And the, yeah, the music is certainly, I mean, it's its own character in the film um, collectively, isn't it? Yes, and yes. Uh, it's interesting, just we were talking about budget. Um, I remember in one of the cast interviews, I think it was Ron Howard that was saying, you know, the budget was so tight, you know, it wouldn't even extend at one point for chairs for actors to sit between scenes. And they sort of had to go to sort of uh, George Lucas or, or Coppola and sort of say, look, you know, <laughs> please be reasonable. We need somewhere to sit. Surely, you know, surely that is not an unreasonable demand. You know, talk, talk about a, a- a way to drive home the budget. Ron Howard is great in that interview. I understand the lean and mean style, but could we just have a chair? And <laughs> and the funny the way he was responded to, well, no, like we can't have a chair. There's a curb over there. You sit on the curb. And they said they would sit in the back of the cars that were used and stuff. So they just sat anywhere, lean and mean. That's for sure. It was a good. It was a good time in in Hollywood. Just about Ron Howard, just very quickly. I mean, he is a living example of. If you are going to be unbelievably influential and powerful, you can still be that and be a nice guy. You know, you don't have to be, a, you know, horrible. How true. I mean, what is the secret? Eh? He's tapped into something where he's just chill. Like, this is just what I do. And perhaps you get more things done by just being chill and working yes. with people instead of butting heads against them. So definite points for Ron Howard. Yeah, he's a good guy. And, and to show up, I can't recommend enough the making of documentary that often will accompany the film if you buy it, American Graffiti. Uh, everybody is on yeah. hand to be interviewed, which says a lot about their feelings about the experience. And for Ron Howard, who was a player at the time, to be sitting there and talking so fondly, it's just one of the wonderful aspects of that film, for sure. I mean, there's so many uh, wonderful little moments. Um, I think it just kicks off very in, in great 
style when poor Toad crashes the scooter into the side of the the diner, which obviously was not planned, but left in. Um, and I, I also Priceless. love, I know we've talked about this, but I also love sort of the dynamic between Mackenzie Phillips Carroll and Paula Matt's John Milner, because that, I mean, if, if they didn't do that right, that could have just, that sort of relationship and that dynamic, it so easily could have just been a little bit disturbing, but they just did it with such great, humor and when Mackenzie Phillips gets hit in the face with a water balloon and just that whole spontaneous reaction. Yeah, for sure. I was surprised. Well, I don't know why I was surprised, but I often come away from the film and I'm thinking, is that not the best part? I mean, you're right. They they somehow were able to nail maybe it was the inexperience of the two actors and they were just sort of riffing together and acting together. And I think when John drops her off at the end of the film, I, I used to be kind of almost surprised. Oh, I, I never really thought that, you know, she was into John. She thought he was exciting and sexy and wanted to kind of date him. I didn't really get that, which is interesting because it shows you how well, like you say, th- they achieved that dynamic of just having an adventure, being out and about, and Carol wanting the prestige of of her association with John, you know, more so than wanting John himself. So, you th- that's how well they played it. You didn't think it was seedy or creepy. It was just, it was, you know what it was? It was just totally charming. The two of them learned from each other, John especially, uh, it's just a wonderful part of that film for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, in 1979, six years after the original, they made more American Graffiti, written and directed by Bill L. Norton. Now, that uh, charted the lives of the principal characters um, through the latter part of the 60s when things were not quite so innocent for many reasons, uh, with the exception of Richard Dreyfuss, um, Kurt. Now, it was interesting when I, I went back to look at your series of articles in preparation for our podcast, and I actually read the comment that, that I wrote about more American Graffiti. And having seen it again since, I, I think I've... I've changed my mind on on the sequel a little bit and the last time I watched it I I actually enjoyed it a lot more and I thought the Vietnam scenes in particular were very well done and um, one thing I did want to ask you we see in Vietnam Bo Hopkins uh, Joe from the Pharaohs uh, has that relationship with um, Charles Martin Smith uh, Terry Fields Toad uh, working in the uh, helicopters in Vietnam now of course that relationship that unlikely friendship uh, was Bo Hopkins and Richard Dreyfus in the first film. So was do you think that part, or do you know if that part with Toad in the helicopter, was that originally conceived for Richard Dreyfus, who chose not to be part of it? I got to wonder. I don't know. I mean, I think I might have said this about Ron Howard first, but I, I, I haven't looked this up specifically, but I, I got to doubt that Richard Dreyfus was ever going to be in this movie I mean, this, the filmmakers, I would assume, would have wanted him, obviously. Again, not having it with me at the time, but I think he had won his Oscar by this point. And so, Richard Dreyfus, and a little bit of a sidebar, the only guy that comes off as a bit of a wanker in, in that making of documentary is Richard Dreyfus. So, I'm not surprised he was not going to lower himself to play that character again. So, therefore, a guy of... of Charles Martin Smith's stature, 
whatever it was at the time, it, I don't think it was it was very huge. I could see it perfectly being a showcase for him. Uh, connecting him with uh, Pharaoh Joe was more of, a, I think, a screenwriter Hollywood sort of device because we just happened to be from the same town and the same movie. I, they made that work okay, but I, I can't see Dreyfus having been involved. Was it built specifically for Charlie Martin Smith to play Toad? Perhaps not, but the filmmakers must have known... Even budget-wise, Dreyfus, it's not really going to happen, so let's make it work. You know, it was Fields that was, he was going to be involved in it anyways, because it, it was part of his epilogue of what happened to him during the war. So, so Dreyfus, even Kurt's character, I, I just can't see it having been conceived for him at all, no. Another thing that I thought worked quite well was how Ron Howard and uh, Cindy Williams, um, Steve and Laurie, how they sort of unwittingly became uh, campus protest heroes. And I thought that was actually quite well done too. So how do you see, uh, in the in the overall scheme of things, how do you see the sequel? Uh, by the way, it was budgeted at $3 million and was perhaps a little bit more successful than it was given credit for. Uh, it was in general released for 126 weeks, according to Box Office Mojo, and grossed $15 million. So it certainly wasn't a failure. Well, I give it a pass. I think a lot of sequels, you have to. I mean, to sit with pen and paper and compare the sequel to the original is folly. And I'm talking more about sequels from back in the day, not the series of films they make nowadays with you know franchises in mind. I mean, it's... They're, they're, they're made a bit differently nowadays. But back in the day, it was that was successful. Perhaps we could tell the later story of these characters. So what you get from more American graffiti is, is more of the characters you've loved. I mean, you can conceive in your mind what you think would have happened to them. And that's fine. And that's fun. Even, you know, the things we're not shown are always fun because we do our own things with them. I enjoy it. I enjoy this film and a lot of sequels that give me more of the characters that I've loved. I mean, often I will say, well, dang, that, that's, that wasn't very good or I didn't really enjoy that. But you got more of what you wanted. So that's the good part. So more American Graffiti, I enjoy it. Perhaps because it amplified Lucas's uh, method of telling different stories and and linking them well they weren't they they were barely linked in more american graffiti but of course the characters are all related to each other uh maybe you had the four different stories and you were able to invest in each individual segment and characters and and when they cut to this next story you were like okay i want to see what they're up to now so there was enough in it to make it a a pretty a pretty good film on its own as a companion it's 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 even better because it's nice to have a companion to a movie that you've loved. Um, they didn't totally destroy what Lucas ha had done. I'm thinking of Eddie and the Cruisers 2. The first film is one of my 25 top films. The second one was a, a farce. So it's got a stink on it. But More American Graffiti is is a is a great movie and it's it's a fun companion and they they did the music well again. Wolfman Jack was on hand. I can see that they thought, you know, Paul Lamatt and Candy Clark were going to be stars. Let's give them a showpiece. It's funny how out of the whole cast, they're the only two that never really sparked, but they were given that showcase. And, uh, you know, they did all, they did all, all right. I enjoy Paula Matt in the film. It's poignant. It can't help but be poignant because you know from the end of American Graffiti what's going to happen to a lot of these characters. And having the built-in knowledge of the changing times, you know it's going to be bittersweet and, and not just thrilling. It is fun to watch it to watch it play out. The different 
methods they used to shoot the different segments was kind of intriguing. It was ambitious, and I, I give it points. I enjoy it. It's it's, it's a pretty good movie. And uh, I'd uh, just strongly recommend everybody to go to soulrideblog.com and have a look at your four-part series on American Graffiti because it's a great series of articles. And also check out the review that you wrote on Wolfman Jack's biography, uh, which also got some very nice feedback from the uh, co-writer and friend of the Wolfman himself. So that was great to see as well. So lots of great stuff on Soul Ride blog there about American Graffiti and Wolfman Jack and Elvis and lots of other stuff too. And I should just mention that Gary has since written a separate review on more American graffiti and we link to all of those articles in our newsletter or you can just go to soulrideblog.com, use the search function for American Graffiti and all of the articles will come up. So as we learned in our series on Aloha from Hawaii, when Elvis arrived in Honolulu on January 9, 1973, several days ahead of the rehearsal concert and the satellite broadcast, he was helicoptered from the airport to the Hilton Village for uh, a filmed reception with fans where he had a few brief words with an old friend, Tom Moffat, known affectionately to everyone as Uncle Tom. And let's just remind ourselves of this little moment. We have to get laid from the crowd. Hey, Elvis. How are you? I'm how are you? you? Welcome back. Thank you. Nice to see you. you look Glad great. to be back. Thank Happy you very birthday, much. One day late. Thank you very much. Nice, nice reception, huh? Yeah, very, very nice. Yeah. Yeah. How long you'll be in town this time? Uh, well, uh, about a week, I would imagine. Uh, it's gonna be a big show Saturday. Oh, it's Sunday morning. It's, it's got to be. I hope it's good. You know. I'm sure it will be. I'm gonna do my best. Elvis, you got a lot of people here want to give you lays and say hello to you. Okay, fantastic. It's the biggest one since the last time. The biggest thing I've ever done. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Appreciate it. Now, Tom Moffat was a local DJ and concert promoter, and according to his 2016 obituary in Hawaii News Now, he made his name in the islands in 1957 when he brought Elvis Presley to perform before thousands of adoring fans. Now, Tom Moffat had been promoting Elvis's Hawaiian fan club around the time of Love Me Tender, and he organised a competition to actually win the hat that Elvis wore in the movie, and they received 53,000 entries. And this alerted Colonel Parker to Elvis's enormous local popularity. Elvis subsequently played three very successful shows in Honolulu over November 10th and 11th, 1957. Uh, this was promoted by Tom Moffat and this cemented the relationship. In a subsequent interview, um, Tom Moffat told Hawaii News that Elvis's first show in Hawaii was one of the most exciting events he had ever presented. So keen to secure Elvis for his first touring show after discharge from the army, Tom Moffat actually bailed up Colonel Parker, who was on vacation in Hawaii while Elvis was still in Germany at that point, and uh, secured a commitment on the promise of a huge petition signed by local fans urging Elvis to come back to Hawaii, and the result was the famous USS Arizona Memorial Benefit in 1961. It raised over $65,000, which was more than 10% of the final cost of the project. Uh, now, in an interview with Dutch television, Tom Moffat said the idea for the benefit aspect was Colonel Parker's alone, um, responding to news that the entire memorial project was about to collapse through lack of funding. And uh, as they did in a later benefit show in Macomb, Mississippi in 1975, um, Elvis and Colonel Parker covered all their own expenses for the Arizona Memorial Benefit Show. And now we do expand a little bit on uh, Tom Moffat's biography in our companion newsletter. Um, he was described by the Honolulu Star advertiser as one of the most influential figures in the Hawaii entertainment industry. Now he was the first rock DJ in Hawaii and a pioneer of Top 40 Radio, had one of the top rating 
radio programs in the 60s on local station KPOI. And uh, we can see that he was clearly liked and trusted by Elvis and Colonel Parker as well. He was given access to interviews, including long distance by phone to Germany, and he later brought some Hawaiian fans who had won a contest to actually visit Elvis in Hollywood on the set of Blue Hawaii. So over six decades as a concert and event promoter, Tom Moffat brought a huge number of major artists to Hawaii. According to his obituary, he presented almost every big name in the music business at least once, including classical concerts, ballet and musical theatre, and he was the leading Hawaiian promoter of mega concerts at the 50,000-seat Aloha Stadium, and he ran record labels and was strongly committed to actively promoting local artists as well. He continued to work as a promoter and DJ into his 80s. He passed away in 2016, aged 85. So like Eddie Sherman and Don Ho, both of whom featured prominently in the story of Aloha from Hawaii, Tom Moffat is another fascinating part of the adventure, and he played a crucial role in cementing Elvis's relationship with the Hawaiian people, which had developed over a number of years through music, movies, and philanthropy, and this culminated in this global music event, Aloha from Hawaii, in January 1973. So Tom Moffat, a pivotal figure in Elvis's relationship with Hawaii over many, many years. Big thanks to Gary Wells for another great contribution. Um, don't forget also to check out his extensive work on American Graffiti at soulrideblog.com. Oh, and by the way, we've also, in our newsletter, we've uh, embedded a clip of that wonderful moment with the water balloon and Mackenzie Phillips. So thanks to Steve Collins for tech support. Thanks to Gainesville for our theme and incidental music. And thank you so much for listening. Original music by Gainesville, keeping the spirit of Tom Petty alive in Europe and playing great classic rock and roll. Check them out at gainesville-band.de. The Deck 4 podcast is also brought to you in association with tellmewheretogo.com. If you love travel, now more than ever, it's important to listen to the experts. The Armstrong and Burton book series, Dark Secrets Haunt Powerful Families in 1980s Britain. Podcast terms and conditions, including our policy on the fair use of copyrighted material for commentary and critique, can be found at the Deck 4 webpage. That's georgefairbrother.com forward slash Deck 4.